like I said, we've been talking through the books of Jude and James, both half-brothers of Jesus, both did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry, but then they watched their brother say, hey, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna rise again, and then he went and did it. And so after the resurrection, both James and Jude believe in Jesus. And James specifically becomes this unbelievable player in the early church. In fact, he is what we would call the church's first pastor, in a sense. He becomes the guy in the church of Jerusalem, leading and shepherding that flock. And what's interesting about James, the book, is that this is actually the first written expression of the Christian faith that we would have. It's the first book that we would say we got in our New Testament canon. None of the gospels actually came before James. James was the first book. And what's also interesting about the book of James is that it's written from a very Jewish perspective. And you gotta think about this. Uh, James is Jewish, which means that Jesus is Jewish. Every one of the first disciples, all of the disciples were Jewish. The apostle Paul was Jewish, and the first 3,000 to believe were Jewish. And so as we read the book of James, sometimes it's not as natural for us Western, um, many of us, some of us might be, uh, have Jewish heritage in this room, but most of us don't have that. And so it's hard for us to digest because the way that James writes is very Jewish. It's very proverbial. In fact, we would say that James is the New Testament version of wisdom literature. It's very punchy. It's very, it feels at times like it's really one line, like it's got a lot of one-liners in it. And as a result of that, it's also probably the book that's taken most out of context in our entire Bible as well. But what I've already gleaned and what's been so encouraging to me is that actually the book of James has beautiful threads woven throughout it. And if we would see those threads, we can start actually unpacking what James is actually trying to argue to the church because if the book of Jude was all about contending for the faith, then you could say that the book of James is about identifying and then explaining what genuine faith is and then giving us wisdom to actually live that out. And that's why I believe that James's thesis statements come to us in verse 17 and 26 of chapter 2 which basically said, just as the spirit is without, uh, or the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works, faith without action, faith without deeds is dead. And to us, it feels like that rubs up a little bit against Paul maybe, but it doesn't because think about it from a Jewish perspective, they don't know any type of faith that is divorced from action. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, yes, but all of our soul, strength, and might as well. As well, So this is actually what it means to unify right thinking and right believing. And that is James' goal in this book, that we are to believe with our hearts and then it is to flow out of our hands and our lives. And so uh, we're gonna stand for the reading of God's word and we are going to read the first 18 verses. So stand with me. All right, it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that he begins just the same way that Jude believes, or begins, which is not to identify with Jesus as his brother, but as as he is a slave, a servant of Jesus. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, though, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstance ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed, and in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business." Blessed is the one, here it is again, who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might become a first fruits of all that he created. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay. Uh, I kind of already introduced this idea, but I just got to, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit ADD, and then we read James, which seems a little ADD, bouncing from thing to thing to thing, and so as I was processing this text this week, it felt like this ADD milkshake, where I'm just like, what the heck is going on here, and how does it all kind of come together, and uh, praise be to God that he doesn't lead us to interpret his word without his spirit, and so I think that I've come to discover the thread that James, through labor, has been weaving through this text. And if this book is about faith, then this section in the book is about how trials and suffering produce genuine faith. So a few housekeeping things before we get going. Number one, this is holy ground. The place of suffering in the life of a Christian is a sacred place. It's a holy place. It may be the most sacred place in the life of a Christian. Number two, this text does not answer all the questions that we might have about what it means to suffer, why we suffer. The Bible doesn't even try to answer all of those questions. And number three, if you are in here this morning and you are in the midst of a trial or you are suffering right now, do not hear me talking at you or down to you as if you just grasp these theological truths that everything's gonna magically be better. That is not the goal. However, what I can do is try to unfold and unwrap what James has to say about our faith persevering through trials in the first 18 verses of his letter. And I believe that you will be comforted by what we discover together this morning. Faith is produced in the inferno 
of fire. And so he begins in verse one, James, a servant of God, and to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, that's very Jewish language, scattered among the nations, or other translations use the word dispersion. And this kind of ties back into the series that we just did in Jeremiah, where our identity as God's people is the identity of an exile, that we are where we're not supposed to be, that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And this is why uh, Peter says that we are resident exiles. We are elect exiles, or Paul says that our passport doesn't belong here. We're actually citizens of heaven, that we're not where we're supposed to be, and that we're not the way we're supposed to be. And a result of that is that we will experience in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be, suffering and trials. I mean, just think of the way that Paul describes our world. He says, our world groans, as in the pains of childbirth. And anyone that's ever been in a room with a woman giving birth knows that that is not a pleasant description. You women know. That was all women laughing. They're like, you have no idea. But this is the world that we live in. This is what sin has done. And so then the question becomes, well, how do I respond to it? And what is God doing in it? And James gives these scattered Christians immediately a word of encouragement. He says, these trials that you are going through, they're designed to produce something in your life, spiritual maturity. In fact, trials and suffering in our life are really just tests, and those tests lead to perseverance, and perseverance, when it comes out fully baked out of the oven that is suffering, produce faith. And it's interesting to me what he says. It's not just faith, but faith that lacks nothing. Therefore, count it all joy. And this idea of perseverance or steadfastness is this ability to endure blows, the blows of life in a world that is not the way that it's supposed to be. Perseverance is grittiness. It's spiritual toughness. And this is the key ingredient for James to complete and perfected faith, which is why he reiterates this idea in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood that test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love them. And I'm so comforted every single time that this book makes sense of the messiness of our lives. This is real. I mean, I don't know a more real statement than this. Suffering has a special way of exposing what we truly trust in our lives. And then we can go two directions. It can either make us holier, it can transform us, it can make us more beautiful, it can make our faith stronger, or it can make us bitter, it can make us angry, and Worse than that, it can even destroy a person's faith, which is why what James has to say to us this morning is so important. And I know that this is true, but I needed to know again this week. And it was just like God plopped people in my life to remind me of this truth. I mean, Mallory and I had dinner on Tuesday with a, a dear, dear friends of ours, a couple at this church who... 13 years ago, went through the fiery furnace of the razor-thin edge of divorce in their marriage. I mean, they were at odds with each other. Sin was coming out of the woodworks. 
And I remember as I was sitting there and they were discussing this as we were talking about just kind of our life's journeys, how they had almost this weird glow by which they talked about the season. Because on one hand, they were talking about this season in their marriage as being the most intense suffering that they had ever went through in their entire lives. But when they reflected on it, there was this deep joy and peace about what God had done to them and in them through that suffering. By God's grace, they stayed in that marriage. And now that marriage is restored and stands as a beacon and a pillar of hope and a ministry to other marriages going through struggles themselves. What Satan meant for evil, God used for good. I called another one of my friends that goes to this church. I respect him so much. Uh, He was a young, super successful CEO in a company, and I know that he walked through a valley of his own, and so I said, you just got to tell me your story. I need to hear it. I need to believe that it's true again. I know that it's true. Help me believe that it's true, and I'm going to read you exactly what he said to me on the phone because it's unbelievably beautiful and powerful. He said, Trig, I don't think that I'm uniquely special in my suffering, but here's my story. I lived my life with a strict social contract with the world, and I was rewarded for that social contract. And that social contract said that my identity is in the success of more responsibility and more money. And that created a value system where work had 95% of the voice in my head, and my family and my faith had the other 5%. And as I received positive affirmation under that social contract over 15 years, I walked down into the darkest path that I have ever walked. And with every worldly deposit of affirmation or wealth, there was a worldly withdrawal from my soul. My actual resume was great, but if my soul had a resume, it would be filing for bankruptcy. And I got to the point where I was convinced that the world would be better without me and my family would be better without me. Trig, he said, Satan works in photos, but God works in films. A photo is a freeze frame, and what Satan says in that freeze frame is you will always be this way, and you will always feel this way, so just give up right now. But God works in films. And what is a film? It has a redemptive arc. And even though I feel this way, the answer for my redemption is not me or more success or more money. Yes, I'm a character in this, but I'm not the main character. Christ is, and he met me there, and he was doing something there in me. And so if you look at just the picture of suffering that Satan wants you to see, it destroys all your hope. But if you zoom out and you see the redemptive arc of the film, it only gives hope. I could just stop right now. I couldn't believe those words. I couldn't believe how eloquent his reflections were. Only the spirit of the Lord can do that in someone's life. And I've reflected on my own suffering in my life, some of which I've caused. I chose some of my suffering, especially before Christ. My sin led me to suffer. That's on me. There's also been suffering in my life that I haven't chosen like waking up in puddles of my own sweat because of paralyzing anxiety. I didn't choose that. And my wife just praying over me, just pleading with God that he would take that pain and deep agony in my soul away. I didn't choose that. But what I can tell you is that God has met me there in both my sin 
that caused suffering and the things in my life that I didn't choose. He is faithful. And so this is true experientially, but is it true biblically? I think so. I mean, God tells the Israelites, remember the Lord your God who led you all the way in the wilderness, in the desert, in a place of suffering for 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Or Paul, he gives this long diatribe in 2 Corinthians where he talks about all the suffering that he's endured, shipwreck, hunger, being beaten. And what's Paul's reflection? I hate suffering. He says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in one thing, my suffering. Or Peter, he says, the trials in our life, they're this fiery furnace that tests the genuineness of our faith. Or James here, he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials because that trial produces perseverance and perseverance fully grown develops mature faith. Or how about Job? Job suffered more than most maybe more than any, and he loses everyone and everything. And his wife, super helpful, right? She goes, curse God and die, Job. My wife hasn't done that. So don't like get this like jab. That's, there's no jab there. But great wife in that moment. Praise God, Job didn't respond to that. Instead, he prays a prayer. Do you know what he prays? He says, my ears had heard but now my eyes see. (laughs) Now my eyes see you, God, for who you are in the midst of his suffering. I'm gonna ask you to be vulnerable for a second. Raise your hand if you've experienced intense suffering in your life. More of you than raised your hand, but still a lot raised your hand. Now raise it again if you've seen God's redemption in your suffering. We got even more hands than we did the first time. Don't know how that's possible, but uh, the point still stands. God is faithful in our suffering because for James, trials in the Christian life are simply growing pains. We all go through them in the maturing process of our faith. And so if you are there right now, can I just encourage you, do not let go of the rope. Hang on for dear life to your faith. And for those of you in this room that are not suffering this morning and you haven't walked through a trial in maybe some time, you will. It doesn't matter who you are, what you have, how much money's in your bank account, what position you are at work, you will enter a season of trials. This is a part of what it means to be in dispersion, to live in exile. We will Suffer, And so the question in life, if it's not, will we suffer, is then how do we suffer? And for James, the thing that is the differentiator here is in verse five, it's wisdom. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I loved taking verse five out of context the first 10 years of my Christian life. Like, okay, ask God for wisdom in anything and he'll give you wisdom. And while I believe we can ask God for wisdom in any situation, that's actually not what James is doing here. 
because this is not divorced from what just happened before it. In fact, what James is talking about, what I discovered this week, is that he's talking about if any of you lacked wisdom as it pertains to suffering, as it pertains to trials, as it pertains to understanding how to live and continue to live a holy life, to continue to be in relationship with God, to not abandon your faith. If any of you lacks wisdom in perseverance, then ask God, and what is God's response gonna be? To withhold it from you? No. He's gonna shower it over your life. He's gonna give it to you generously. Who else is encouraged by that this morning? That God will give us wisdom that we desperately need in the midst of suffering, which leads to so many temptations to go astray. And God will give us that wisdom. God will give us that wisdom. Now, this does not mean that he will give us answers. A lot of times, God won't give us answers. Because wisdom isn't answers but he can give us wisdom. Are we praying for wisdom? Not just to buy the million dollar house or marry this person, but are we asking God for wisdom in the midst of trials? Because when we ask for wisdom, what's even more comforting to me is that we're asking for Christ himself. In fact, I think that James is just kind of like stealing from something that his brother said in Matthew 7. Right, where he says, you know, if, if, if you don't ask in faith, you don't actually trust God's wisdom and then you won't live it out. And if you don't live it out, you'll be double-minded and you'll be unstable, tossed all about like a wave of the sea. This sounds a whole lot like what Jesus has to say to us in Matthew 7, where he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and believes them, no, does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine but does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Mature faith is a storm-tested house. The question in your life is not, will the storm come? It's, will you build it on a rock, or will you build it on the sand? Will it wash away, or will it stand firm? And this is where we need wisdom. This is where we need Christ. This is where we need the one that Paul said is the very wisdom of God. Are we pleading for Jesus in the midst of trials? Are we pleading for wisdom? Because if this book is about faith and this section is about how trials in life of a believer produce perseverance, which then fully baked becomes resilient, complete faith, and we need wisdom in those trials, then James immediately gives us two chunks of wisdom about two different things that now we can immediately apply. The first is wisdom about money and trials, and the second is about sin and trials. Look at verse nine. 
Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises in scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And here's why we need wisdom about money and trials because trials do not discriminate. They will come for the rich and the poor. They will come with those that have a lot and have a little. They will come for those in sickness and in health. They do not discriminate. But the danger of riches is trusting them to give you a trial-free life. Wealth is such a good idol, guys. It's so good at numbing problems and, and, and pretending like they just go away. And my dad's a dentist, and this illustration makes sense to me. Hopefully it makes sense to you. But if it doesn't, whatever, swing and a miss. So if I have a dental problem and I, have, and I need a root canal, what's the first thing that a dentist will do? He'll add Novocaine to the gums right around that tooth, and he will numb up that entire area of your mouth. Now, that Novocaine works so well that he could send you right home and all your pain would be gone. And he wouldn't even have to do the root canal. You might not even know that he did the root canal or not. And you could be sent home without that root canal actually being performed, but then the Novocaine would wear off and you would still be in immense pain. And you would just need one more hit of Novocaine to let you keep going. And this, in so many ways, is what wealth can do in our lives. It can numb us from dealing with the root of our problems. One more click on Amazon, one more pair of shoes, one more addition to the house, one more new car, one more vacation. And we can just numb, 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 numb. And here's the thing, 99% of us in this room are rich. So this is for all of us. You're not getting off the hook. I'm not either. And Jesus actually taught that the rich are spiritually underprivileged, not overprivileged. Spiritually speaking, rich people, and that's the vast majority of us in this room, are underprivileged spiritually. I mean, Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than a camel. And then he says, admittedly, everything is possible with God, which, praise God, is why so many of us in this room love Jesus. He can do it, and he does do it. But earthly wealth is not a boost. It's a barrier. It's a liability in the kingdom of God. Wealth is not the problem. It's an amoral object, but it's just what it can do to our hearts because wealth can do many things. It can make us feel powerful. It can make us feel in control. But if you've gotten so good at manipulating your environment constantly because you have money to avoid discomfort and pain, your faith will become emaciated so that when the storm comes and you can't numb anymore because your riches have faded away, guess what, James says, you fade with it. And all the while, all our wealth has done is keep us from seeing with spiritual eyes the reality of our situation, which is we are just as utterly helpless and dependent on God as a beggar on the street asking for one more dime. And God actually warns his own people about to walk into prosperity that he's going to give them that this is the scenario. That's why money's not bad. It's not money that's bad. It's what we do with money. In Deuteronomy 8, before God's people walk into the promised land, you know what God says? He says, observe my commands, revere me. I'm bringing you into a land that has everything that you need. 
And he says, you will lack nothing. You'll have streams and gushing springs, fruit, olive oil, milk, and honey. But when you eat and you are satisfied, when you build your nice homes with that extra garage, when your herds grow large and you can stuff your pockets full of silver and gold, and now here's the direct quote from verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. Do we know this? It is so easy to say with our lips, we believe God, but then trust our wealth for what God actually wants to do in our life. We need wisdom about wealth. God does not want you to hedge your bets on wealth. He wants you to hedge your bets on him. But we also need wisdom about sin amidst suffering. Look at 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And I think he adds this part so that we know that suffering or trials aren't gonna just be this magic pill that automatically creates a more mature faith in our life. And he says this because I think it's super tempting to believe in the midst of our suffering, which will lead to temptations, that God is the one that is tempting us and he wants to make it very clear that God is not tempted by evil and he does not tempt others with evil. But the Bible does make it clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and principalities of this world. But here's the problem with that. Many people will stop right there and they will attribute all of their trials and all of their testings to Satan. Oh, I have a porn addiction. Satan made me do it. I can't serve my wife and she's disgruntled in our marriage because I'm a, I have been a bad husband. Satan made me do it or I have a gambling addiction, that's Satan, or all of the discouragement and pain in my life that's due to Satan. But what happens in that moment is we're tempted, if we're not careful, of making Satan bigger than he actually is and getting ourselves off the hook for what we have done in our lives. And we need to examine, is some of the suffering that has come into our lives because I have committed sin and I need to repent. This is why he says, God didn't tempt you. Your own evil desires, they drag you away and then they give birth to sin. And then that sin, when fully grown, gives birth to a grandchild and that grandchild is death. God didn't do that. You did that. But what if God was so good? And this is a hard truth for me to grasp. But what if God was so good that he could take even your sinful desires, even the temptations in your life that he did not give you and use them for your own spiritual maturity when you persevere through them? What if God is so good that he could even use Satan and his work for your benefit? I mean, this is clear that he does this in scripture. Think about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. We all know this passage in a sense, right? It's Paul talking about that thorn in his flesh. What is that thorn? I don't know. We don't know. And it doesn't really matter if we know because we all know the feeling of having a thorn in the flesh. And what does the text say? It was a messenger of Satan to torment me. So Satan has a role to accuse 
And then the text says, to keep me from being conceited. That God let Satan attach himself to this certain suffering to keep Paul from becoming proud, becoming arrogant, and God allowed it. God was in control of it. Because think about who uh, Paul prays to. Is he praying against Satan or to Satan? No, of course not. He's praying to God. He pleads with God three times. God, take this thorn out of my life. And what was God's answer? No. No. No, Paul. I like that thorn. I'm gonna use that thorn. I want that thorn in your life. Could it be that God would allow you to suffer the way he let Paul suffer? Could it be? Is our theology big enough for a God that would allow you to suffer for your own good? Why? Because he says this to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, you don't understand. You're asking for this thorn to be taken away, but if the thorn is taken away, my power is taken away. And that sounds a whole lot like verse four, doesn't it? This is how the ESV translates it. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it marinate in your life that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's why Paul can say, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults and hardships. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Suffering produces genuine faith. So could it be that God is so good that while we are living in a place that we weren't meant to live, where we are living lives we weren't meant to live, with the sin in our lives, that God is good enough to use it to make us look more like him. Could he be that good? I think he could. Because while our sinful desires only give birth to sin and death, God only gives birth to new life. Look at verse 17 and 18, and then we'll be done. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of his truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Let me try to give you some cliff notes. Our sinful desires give birth to two things, sin and death, but God only gives birth to good things. He only gives birth to new life. And he gives birth to new life through what? The word of his truth. You know what that is? That's the gospel. So how does God give birth to new life? Through what? Death. Because while Jesus' body was crucified on the cross, his soul was crushed in the garden. And he asked God, well, we can ask God. He said, my God, please take this cup of suffering away from me but not my will be done, your will be done. And what was God's answer? No. No, you can't have that cup pass. You gotta take that cup. You gotta suffer. You need to be crucified. 
Could it be that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a faith where we worship a God that can say, I know your sufferings, not because I know them here, but because I climbed down into the world that I created, that you've made a mess of, and I'm gonna be punished in suffering for it. I'm gonna be spit on, I'm gonna be mocked, I'm gonna be poor, I'm gonna be insulted, I'm gonna be reviled. Nobody's gonna believe in me in my own family and I'm gonna do that all so that you would know you're not alone in your suffering. And then James says, the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows, do you know what he is saying? When Christ was crucified, the synoptic gospels all say that the lights went out on Jesus. The whole world went dark. And in the ancient world, they wouldn't have lights like this that would produce shadows just below our feet. They would only have oil lamps. And so if you were over for dinner at somebody's house and all they had was the oil lamp and they were holding that oil lamp and they were looking at you, you would be in the light. But if they turned their back on you and you were behind them, now you are left in the shadows. And what does James say? He is the father of heavenly lights where there is no changing shadows. It is so tempting to believe in the midst of suffering that God has abandoned me, that God has forsaken me, that he's left me in the dark. And James promises us, he's looking at us, he's holding the lamp, his face is upon us, his face is towards us, he hasn't turned his back on us. And we can know this because he was forsaken. He was left in the dark so that the light never goes out on us. It's not possible for a Christian to suffer alone. God is always there with you. Blessed is the one who perseveres the one, Christ, who perseveres under trial because having stood that test, he will receive the crown of life. He is king. That's Christ. This whole text is Christ. Blessed is the one who persevered under trials for us. Blessed is the one who is wisdom embodied. Blessed is the one who is willing to leave the riches of heaven, the comforts of heaven for the poverty and the discomfort of this world. Blessed is the one who is tempted the way that we were tempted, but he aced the test while we failed it. Blessed is the one who was the good and perfect gift from heaven. Blessed is the one who was the first fruits of all humanity, the seed that had to go into the ground, be buried, and die before the tree could blossom forth with new life. Blessed is the one who did not become bitter. He didn't even become better. He became perfect through his suffering, and blessed is the one who faced that trial and was able to consider it all joy because of the redeeming love that he had for his people. And now we can suffer, not as those who do not have hope, but as those that know hope in a body. Therefore, crossroads, consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that perseverance produces, or the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work. Let it finish, let it marinate so that you can be mature and complete, not 
lacking in anything. Because at the end of the day, trials are where we get to know God because God revealed himself to us and his bleeding love for us right in the center of a trial, not in comfort, in suffering. Could it be that he can do the same thing in your life and that what he's doing in that suffering is crucifying all of the other things we might trust in our life to strip us so that we would just trust one thing, and that is him. Let's pray. Our Father, we worship you and we thank you that you would give us such a good gift that is your son. We praise you that you have not turned your back on us, that the light is still shining towards us. And we pray that in the midst of suffering, we would not become bitter, but that you would allow us to be perfected and transformed into your beautiful image. Lord, we worship you that we have the testimony of your, your brother, James, who can speak wisdom into our lives. Help us to apply it this morning and then live it out this week. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.